I'll start out with a, just for all the history teachers in the audience, just going to start off with a little bit of uh, history here and uh, just before we sort of ease into this passage. Um, in the Middle Ages in Europe, kings and queens and other royals would go on what was called a progress. They would uh, go around the country with a couple of hundred servants and fellow royals and they'd drop in on uh, other nobles, generally showing their faces to their loyal subjects. Uh, this wasn't just a nice trip in the countryside. This was propaganda. They were going out. They wanted to show everyone in the population what a lovely, warm, cuddly royal person they were. Uh, perhaps, of course, they go out for a more serious reasons. Perhaps they go out to uh, drop in on a noble who was thinking of rebellion, fighting against them, just to give them a bit of a scare. Or perhaps they'd travel around celebrating a great military victory, whatever it was. The king or queen of, of wherever it was would uh, go there and they would be surrounded by servants. They would have brought their own servants. The people in the castle or wherever they were would be serving them. Even the, the person that castle belonged to would be serving them. The king expected everyone to serve them, and to be fair, everyone was expecting to be serving the king. That's just what you did. That's how it was. Tough gig. Somebody had to do it. Uh, and so they would uh, be doing this. I suppose there was always the risk someone would throw you out of a window or something, but generally speaking, uh, there was a lot of serving going on towards this king or queen or whoever it was. So today we are back in the book of Mark, which we've been looking at really over the last couple of months. And today we're thinking about kings. You can see there the, the subtitle on the, on the slide there is The King and the Cross. We're thinking about those two things, the king and the cross. The, the book of Mark here, this is a biography about a man called Jesus, written by a bloke called Mark. Uh, and in the passage that, that Libby just read for us, you, you could could see, well, you know, Jesus, who is this king, is on a progress. He's traveling around the country and is now heading towards Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. But this is very different to those medieval progresses I was just telling you about. In this passage, Jesus once again predicts his death. But why has he got to die? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did this king who we've been learning about over the last couple of months have to die? That's what we're going to think about today. So first of all, we're going to think about, uh, excuse me, first of all, we're going to think about three things. You can see them there on the back of your, your program. I would urge you to uh, keep that near you. It's a good place to take notes as we go through. Um, you also want to keep open the, the Bible and keep the passage open. We're going to be jumping around a little bit in here, so do keep that open. But we're going to first of all think about the servant king, the idea of the servant king. Then we're going to look at why he came. And finally, we're going to think about why we go. So first of all, the servant king, why he came, and why we go. First of all, the servant king. I don't know if any of you have actually met kings or queens uh, in the flesh. I've never met one in the flesh. I've met, I've met a prince in the flesh. Denise was telling me that uh, one of her cousins 
I think it was last week, met uh, Prince Charles uh, just in passing at Chatsworth, like you do. Um, but I don't know how you would describe a, what a king or a queen is to perhaps a, a kid. I don't know what you'd say. Perhaps you'd say something about, you know, they're, they're in charge, they make decisions, uh, they got the job because their father gave it to them. Um, they're the boss. People bow down before them. They rule. People look to them as leaders. That seems to be largely true of, of kings and rulers. And as we've heard in the, the book of Mark so far, a lot of that's true of Jesus. He has great authority. He makes decisions. People look to him as a leader. He rules. However, how Jesus rules is different to earthly kings. It's a fundamental difference. It's a fundamental difference between Jesus and the people who started other religions as well. But James and John, as we were reading about, they're expecting Jesus to rule like an earthly king, to rule on a throne surrounded by servants, perhaps soldiers, giving out commands, ruling, maybe fighting the Romans, being pretty much a copy of all the other rulers at the time. Look there, in, look, look there in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want, to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And people give the brothers a pretty hard time about that. It makes sense on many levels. You know, if, if you've been following this guy around and you're, and you're pretty sure now he's going to be a king, he's going to be a ruler, you know he's going up to Jerusalem and that's where the final confrontation with his enemies are and because you've seen his power and his authority, you're pretty sure he's going to win, right? This king that has been prophesied about for hundreds of years and you're one of, you're one of the 12 who've been closest with him. In actual fact, you're one of the four who've been really closest with him. James and John, together with Peter and Andrew, were the closest of the disciples to Jesus. Aren't you thinking, okay, you know, what am I going to be doing here? You know, surely I'm in line for minister of education, foreign secretary. Maybe the hair wasn't quite messy enough for foreign secretary. Um, but, but we know this is on their minds because... because that's what they're asking. They're asking literally, I want to be, we want to be your right-hand men. Well, your left-hand right-hand men, I suppose, technically. We know they're expecting Jesus to be that kind of king. But we, and we know they've heard about him talking about his death, saying, I will death and rise again. And maybe they haven't quite understood that. Maybe they're thinking that's kind of a word picture or something. Um, Perhaps as, as Peter did, as, as Ian was preaching about a couple of weeks ago, perhaps they're saying, yes, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. But maybe not quite understanding what that will involve. Because he's going to be a king, right? And that's what kings do. You know, they rule. So you need people to help you when you rule. Now, Jesus has already promised the 12 disciples thrones to oversee the 12 tribes of Israel. That doesn't seem to be enough, so, so they ask him this question. Uh, Teacher, what we, want to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And so Jesus asks them a question. Now, they should have known by now, 
when Jesus asks you a question, be careful, okay? Because this is, might not end up very well for you. So he asks them a question. Now, if it were, you know, perhaps we might have expected him to say a question like, and who do you think you are exactly? Or a question like, and I'm your fairy godmother, right? Or something like that. No, he is super gracious. Maybe. Maybe he's super gracious. He's just handing them rope to hang hang themselves with, really. So Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And so they tell him fair and square. We want to sit on your right and your left hand in glory. They are saying that a throne uh, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel is not enough. We want the thrones closest to you, the positions of greatest importance. You can see there's some backwards and forwards stuff starting off in verse 38. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So this isn't really the main, the main part of, of, of our message today, but just want to point out a couple of things to you. The cup Jesus is talking about, that represents his suffering. Suffering was often uh, talked about, particularly in the Old Testament, as a cup. Some of you may know uh, that the night before he died, Jesus prayed, Lord, take this cup from me. The cup was his, his suffering that was about to come. Uh, the baptism he's referring to is his death and resurrection. That's one of the reasons why when we baptize people, we point out that this, it's a picture of Jesus' death when they go into the water and his resurrection when they come out. Jesus is really implying here, you don't know what I'm going to go through for you. And by the way, even if you did, there's no way you could possibly do it. Despite the fact that Jesus has now told them three times what's going to happen in Jerusalem, his death and resurrection, he knows the disciples aren't really grasping it. But James and John say, they no, we could do it. We could go through it. And Jesus must be thinking, I don't think so. But then sort of reverses it a bit. And he says, yeah, actually, you are going to go through suffering. And you are going to be baptized with the baptism I have. He knows that, Jesus and, uh, that James and John are going to suffer for their faith as they are leaders of the early church. James is going to be killed for his faith. We can read about that in Acts, the book of Acts. And from verse 40, you would think that, that maybe like last week, the, the position on Jesus' left and right are going to belong to great heroes like uh, Moses and Elijah, like we heard about last week. Some great prophets, or maybe, uh, maybe Jacob and Abraham, those kind of guys. What we find out later on is that that is reserved for the two criminals who hung on either side of Jesus when he died on the cross. So we get down into verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're upset. You can understand that. They're upset about, it. They're upset about their attitude. 
They're upset about the fact of their arrogance at going there, but let's face it, they're probably most upset because they didn't think about it first. And they didn't get their blowing first. That's probably what they wanted to do. So verse 42, Jesus calls them together once again. We've seen this time and time again where he brings together the 12 away from everyone else. And he explains why he's going to be different to every other king. Jesus taught um, a couple of weeks ago, Ian was saying how the Gospel of Mark is a roller coaster, going up and down. This, he's now, Jesus is now explaining what's going to happen when he gets to the end. Look with, me, look with me back at verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the third time that Jesus has told them this stuff, although this time has more detail. Uh, people say that when you are asking someone about something, you should ask six questions. Uh, what, when, where, who, why, and how? And that's what Jesus talks about. He, t- he, tell, he tells them in, the, in, in verse 33, verse 34, he tells them this stuff. He says, where? He says, Jerusalem. We know where we're going. Who? Himself, the Son of Man. That is a a figure from the book of Daniel which is full of the authority given them by God the Father. It's one of Jesus' favourite titles for himself. He's saying, I'm going up there. What? His own death and resurrection. How? By By being delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They're going to condemn him to death hand him over to the Gentiles, that is the Romans, who will be mocked, spat on, flogged and killed. One of the prophets in the Old Testament, a guy called Isaiah, wrote about this 600 years earlier. He wrote a number of passages specifically about Jesus as this servant king. One of them, you don't have to turn there, Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says, I offered my back to those who beat me, My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. So we know who, we know where, we know what, we know how. We know when. When we get to Jerusalem, I suppose Jesus was saying, he said he would rise from the dead after three days. So we know the when. But he doesn't talk about why why he has to die, or why he's going to rise again. He's going to explain that after James and John ask him this question. It seems like he needs that, that object lesson of James and John asking for it to be at his left and right hand to illustrate why he has to die. So in verse, 41, when he, uh, verse 42, excuse me, when he pulls them together, they've already heard the first part, now he's going to hear the second part. Why? You can see it there in verse 45. Being an earthly king, 
And what James and John were looking for is to be served by others, to be the top, to lord it over others. However subtly, they're expecting people to do nice things for them because of their position. Jesus is totally different. See there, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has more authority than any ruler and he has come to serve his people by dying for them. He has come to serve his people by rising for them. So let's dig a bit deeper into verse 45. This is super important. This is our second point, why Jesus came. Uh, It would be easy just to read over that verse pretty quickly. Sometimes when politicians have won an election or something, they'll say, I'm here to to serve you. Um, And I don't know why that was an American accent, by the way. Um, uh, I'm here to serve you. You know, they, they, they say that and you know it's, pretty much something they're just saying right not so here this verse is the very heart of the good news about jesus christ this verse is the very heart of of what it means to be a christian first notice it says uh the son of man did not come to be served it didn't say the son of man was was born to serve because He's existed for all eternity. Jesus already existed. And so it is true that when when he was born in Bethlehem, he was coming. He already existed. And this king has come to die, to give his life. This king has come to go to the cross. Sure, he's going to teach us uh, good things to know. He's going to give us wisdom. Uh, He's going to show us what the Old Testament was all about a lot lot more clearly. Through his life, we're going to see the heart of God. That is very true. That is all true. But more than anything, this king came to die. No other royal would do that. In one sense, there's many reasons why Jesus came to die. There's a pastor called John Piper. Some of you may have heard of him. He wrote a book called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I'm sure there's many more. It was a staggering event. The whole of history was turning on that crooks when Jesus died on the cross. But Jesus here highlights one. One reason to die as a ransom for many. We need to understand what it means by there by ransom. Nowadays, we think of that in terms of kidnapping. Anyone seen the film Ransom? That was a great movie. I enjoyed that. Um, we think of someone being kidnapped, and so the kidnapper's family or friends pay a ransom, and they are released. At this time, it would have been more about the idea of paying to free a slave, someone who's been in, had a life of service, serving someone else, and they, somebody pays a, a lot of money, I mean a lot of money, to have them released from that and to free them. That's the kind of ransom Jesus is talking about here. Let's just take a moment now. Just think about someone in your life who has made a huge difference to you. Perhaps 
a parent, a friend, a spouse, a mentor. Just think about that person just for a moment. Didn't they give up time or money or influence to speak into your life, to, to, to build you up? Maybe they gave up a career or their own aspirations, even their, their, their life goals they may have sacrificed to build you up, to make you more than you were. Were there any conditions attached to it? I suspect not. And that is the nature of this ransom. That is the nature of sacrificial love. It makes an unconditional substitution. Unconditional substitution. One person gives from themselves, pays some kind of cost, and the other receives it and is built up, becomes more than they were without expectation or condition. Jesus came to die for many people. He says it right there. He came to die to pay a price for us. When we do things wrong, or when we do, don't do the things we should do, God is angry. We know that. We know that if we're being realistic with us. We know when things feel bad. God is angry at them, and the price for that is his anger and ultimately to be condemned to hell. Does that sound harsh? Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that and so he comes and dies in our place, serving that sentence, paying that price so we can be freed from that, so we can be ransomed from that, so we do not have to spend eternity in hell. Without his death on the cross, his people would be slaves still, condemned to that eternity for our wrongdoing. But the ransom of Jesus paid in full the price on the cross. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could pay that price because of the unimaginable amount that has to be paid at that point. That ransom has to be staggering because of the number of people he's paying for. It has to be someone who can give and give and give and give in one terrible death. Only God has the capacity to do that. That's why it had to be Jesus who pays that ransom. That's why it has to be Jesus who died for us. Only a king who was a true servant would want to do this for you. Only the Son of Man could do this for you. No other king would want to do that for you. Again, in the book of Isaiah, we talked about a moment ago, chapter 53, verse 11. He wrote this, he says, after, and he's talking about Jesus. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. So Isaiah is saying he's going to rise from the dead. And be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, that is Jesus, will justify many. He's going to save many and he will bear their iniquities. It means he will pay their price. He will pay the ransom. Put your trust in this servant king today. The founders of all other religions saw their roles as being to bring enlightenment, to teach wisdom, to live as an example, 
to convert as many people as possible, perhaps, to their faith. Lofty and, and, and in some ways dispassionate goals, Jesus is far, far more personal, far, far more intimate. He came to die for you, to be tortured on the cross for you. Why would you not put your trust in him? Surely there is nobody more trustworthy than somebody who has died for you. Trust him and follow him and you will be saved. You will live with this saviour forever. If you're here today or you're listening on our website, put your trust in Jesus who died for you. And so this is why we go. This is why we go. Our third point, this is why we go and serve. If you are a Christian, then we are to follow our Saviour. We are to follow the Son of Man who gave his life to pay our ransom. We go and serve. Now, base jumping is not a hobby that I am going to be taking up anytime soon. And if you know what base jumping is, base jumping is going to the top of a tall building or perhaps a mountainside, and jumping off. With a parachute, just for, to clarify that, but jumping off, right? I would be struggling to jump off that balcony. You know, I mean, I mean no. You will not get me doing that. Uh, I read a story this week about a base jumper who had jumped off a mountain and his parachute had snagged halfway down. And he was left dangling from his parachute halfway down the cliff face. This is another reason why I will not be doing base jumping anytime soon. So all the volunteers from the local mountain rescue, whatever it was, get down to him. Apparently it was a very difficult rescue because they had to come a a long way down this rock face. And they, they were able to rescue him, taking up all was well. This man said, I owe them my life. He said to these rescuers, I owe them my life. You may have heard that in similar situations where somebody's been saved from some dramatic circumstance. They say to their rescuers, I owe them my life. So if, and I understand that. I get that. That's, that's fair enough. So a fair question for him from perhaps the rescuers at that point would have been, okay, so what are you going to do with this life that you've been given I don't expect he was saying he was literally going to follow these rescuers round and and wait on them hand and foot and and do all kinds of things for them. But it would be a fair question. What are you going to do with it? If the nature of Jesus' sacrifice is unconditional, substitutionary love, that he's loved us so much that he's served us by dying and rising for us, he is looking for us to have the same kind of attitude to do the same kind of things with our lives no like James and John we cannot drink the same cup we cannot suffer as much as he suffered like James and John we cannot undergo the same baptism that he underwent i.e. his death and resurrection but our lives should be marked with the same kind of attitude they should have the same the same aroma Marked by service, marked by unconditional, substitutionary love. Do we have to? 
No. Remember, his love is unconditional. If Jesus did that so that we had to serve and follow him in that way, then that would no longer be unconditional, right? That would be conditional love. It doesn't say there, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, uh, to give his life as a ransom for many so they can go and serve as well. No, he came to set us free. But the question is, what are we going to do with that freedom? What are we going to do with that life he has bought for us? What is the most appropriate response to this kind of staggering servant love? I want to suggest to you that it's to love others the same way, to return the best that we can out of thankfulness that love. You can see that's Jesus' idea when you, when you go back to, to verse 42. Um, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. This then is the standard. This is the, this is the expectation, the life that Jesus is encouraging us to leave. Do what we can for who we can, expecting no reward or recognition. What, what's our motivation? Thankfulness. Thankfulness to the one who's ransomed us, who's brought us out of that slavery. Yet I don't. I don't serve as I should. There are a million different ways we can serve each other. Uh, I'm not going to even attempt to list or suggest a whole set of them to you. Look around you. Look at your brothers and sisters. That we all have needs. We cannot serve each other notionally. We cannot serve it in some uh, sort of knowledge way you know, we have to serve each other by doing things, by being there for each other, by knowing one another. How can we know how to serve each other if we don't know each other? How can we serve each other if we're not together? We do this as community. We do this as the church. We do this as a community here in Rotherham, the people here in Rotherham, people who we want to serve. That's what a church is. That's what a church does. So if I'm not going to uh, list out loads of ways to apply this, you know that I want to give you some kind of list to apply things, because that's what I do. So instead, I want to give you four things that I know in my heart are attitudes that stop me from serving. Attitudes that stop me from serving as Jesus told me to serve. Number one, when my attitude is, they're getting me to do something I don't want to do. Or they're getting me to, some, to give something I don't want to give. If I'm living my life like my wants are the most important, or that my possessions are what makes a good life in some ways, then that attitude is going to say, is going to stop me from serving others. Number two, when my attitude, when my heart says, I only want to serve the way I desire to serve, or, 
Yeah. Now, I only want to serve the way I desire to stir, serve. I put my sense of worth ahead of what the needs actually are. A lovely subset of this one is that lovely phrase, it's not my job. Yeah, right. Um, number three. An attitude that says, I want to be known as a servant, perhaps instead of actually being a servant. I want to be known as a servant instead of actually being a servant. This is one, certainly one of my own sins. Uh, one speaker pointed out there's a great test for this as to where they have this attitude. Uh, say at the end of an event you've helped with, someone's giving out the thanks and they miss your name out. How do you feel? Do you feel angry, hard done by, irritated, I'm not doing this for them ever again? Am I only serving my own reputation? Or am I truly serving others? Number four, an attitude that says, I only want to serve at things that I can actually do or that I can actually afford, perhaps. Uh, that can be very sensible. You know, if you are, if we go to the airport together and somebody calls me when we're in the queue getting on and says, we need a pilot, um, no, I shouldn't serve you in that way. I'm not a qualified pilot, okay? I know Jesus says I can do all things uh, through Christ who strengthens me, but it, can't, it doesn't mean that, okay? Just for reference, if you were thinking you're going to do that, don't do that. Um, but we can use that as an excuse, okay? We know, you know, we know that. There's plenty of times when I will, I will tackle a, perhaps a DIY project where I have very little experience, but I'll still give it a go, right? Or, or in terms of, 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 like I was saying there, um, what I can afford. I may very well spend way over the budget when I'm in a shop and not worry about it too much. But then when I come to Jesus, am I like, no, okay, uh, it's 4.59 and I am going home now? Or no, it's 10% and it's only 10% and it's what, not one penny more whatever it may be. Heart attitudes that, that can affect me, that do affect me, and how I serve. Uh, there's another attitude we've got to be aware of, but it's the other way around. This is the attitude that stops me from letting my Christian brothers serve me. There's a song that sometimes, uh, that I'd like to sing sometime. It's called the Servant Song. The first verse says, Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the strength to let you be my servant too. We need to allow others to serve us. When we don't, that is often our pride. Our pride stirring up different ways. Uh, you, know, you know the phrases. I use them, I'm sure, way too often. No, I've got it. You're okay. Covered. I don't need it. Uh, stop fussing. That's a good one. Stop fussing. Stop fussing over me. Um, uh, are you saying I'm not capable? You know, the thought is, are you saying I'm not capable? Are you saying I can't do this? Uh, or that, that old favourite. Uh, no, I'll do it. You don't know how to do it. You know, you don't know it being, you know, I can do it the best way I like it. You'll mess it all up. I'll do it. 
All those things, when they're in my heart, and I, they're quite often, um, they're preventing my brothers and sisters from serving me, from doing what Jesus has told them to do. How ironic is that? How crazy is that? What's the antidote? When we're aware of these kinds of attitudes stirring up in our hearts, the attitude is the gospel. The attitude is the good news of Jesus. The antidote is remembering that our lives were ransomed by Jesus at at an amazing cost. The antidote is looking around us at our brothers and sisters and realizing that Jesus ransomed them at a staggering cost. He ransomed them to serve. He ransomed me to serve. Why then should we not serve? Jesus' call for us today is simple. I ransomed your life. Trust me. Love me. And love each other by serving. I, I trust and I pray that we would serve and love each other as Jesus told us to, that we would hear from him when we die the words in the Gospel of Matthew, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you sent your son Jesus into the world. We thank you because without him we have no hope. Without him coming and dying, without paying that ransom for us, without rising from the dead, we have no hope. Without that, there is no good news. And yet you did. And so there is good news. Lord, we pray and pray that we would more and more put our trust in Jesus. We pray that more and more we would remember his ransom and in light of his ransom, not because we have to, but because we're thankful. Not because we have to, but because love should be reflected back in this way we would love you and love others by serving each other in different ways according to our abilities and lord yes we do pray that when finally we see jesus face to face he would say well done good and faithful servant amen